Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. Thank you. My goodness. That's very generous of you. I appreciate it. Please sit down so we can start the show. As you know, my name is Paul Ollinger. Oh, damn it. There you go again. Please. Come on. I'm human just like you. Sit down. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. It's a great day. Great day to be alive. Hope it's going well for you. I've got a fun interview for you today with a guy named Bruce Daisley, who is the author of a new book called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Bruce is the former king of Europe for Twitter. He was Twitter's head of Europe. That was before Brexit. Maybe now he's just the mayor of London. I don't know. Anyway, he's an insightful, thoughtful, interesting guy and had a really fun conversation with him. So before we jump into that, I want to know where you stand on work. Tell me something. Do you like your job? Do you like your job? If I asked you, if I asked you to make a list of pros and cons at your job, what would be on it? I just threw down some bullets that kind of reminded me the last time I had a job. Here's what I didn't like. Number one, always on. You're always on. Starts with that device in your pocket. The thing that was meant to set us free has enslaved us, ladies and gentlemen. You are always on. Whether you're in line at the deli or sitting at your kid's soccer game, you're thinking about work. You're texting colleagues or you're answering emails on the weekends and it sucks. Don't pretend like it doesn't. I mean, it's better than starving, but it's kind of a drag if you're always on. Stress. Stress is a big con. Every 90 days in sales, Oh, just the feeling in your gut as you come close to hitting your goal or miss it by a mile, stress, or if you've got a deadline to hit in development or whatever, man, stress, always there. Travel, travel's a big one. Coach class, man, coach class sucks. That middle seat back in coach class near the toilets in between a couple of pituitary cases on your way to Cleveland. You got your elbows tucked in trying to type on your tiny little desk there in coach class because you got to get a presentation done and then you land at the airport and catch a cab to get to your hotel at one o'clock in the morning. Travel sucks. What about this? Can you be yourself at work? What about that? What about this? What about the inability to be yourself at work? Have you ever felt that? Have you felt inauthentic in a way that just made you want to puke? Did you have to stay on message at work in a way that was just like, oh, it's torturing me. It's killing me. If I ever express doubt in a meeting about what we're doing, I'll look like I'm not a team player and people will talk shit about me to my face and behind my back. Then again, to be authentic, do you have to say everything that's on your mind? That was a little bit of a problem for me. You don't have to say everything to be on your mind. You wouldn't do that at home. You don't tell your spouse everything that's on your mind. You, you sit there and you say, okay, uh-huh, how can I help? That's what you say. You don't have to say everything that comes to mind. Now let's talk about the pros. Because there's an interesting thing about the pros. Here's what I believe. Here's my theory. I think we don't know or we don't acknowledge all the great stuff we get from work. Like, for example, if I asked you, what do you get from work? I bet the number one thing that comes to mind is this. A paycheck. Paycheck. That's right. And that makes sense. On the surface, it appears that that's why we're working. What do I miss financially about work? Money, health benefits, a 401k life insurance, people there to help you with all of those things in the HR department if you need them. Those are good things. But there's other stuff we're getting from work that we don't put down on that list. How about this? Sense of accomplishment, the satisfaction of doing a job well, satisfaction from learning new things. What about pride? What about pride and association of being part of a great organization? 
changing the world in some ways, many positive. What about this? Here's the biggest one. When I left work, I didn't know I was going to miss, but I missed it. I missed having friends at the office because I did. I've got great, great friends that I've made all these years working. When I bailed on my job, I missed them. I couldn't really say that because I didn't really feel, I didn't understand what was missing. That was it. Belongingness. Yeah, we're going to go to Maslow's hierarchy today. We're not just going to stay on the first or second level. We're going up to belongingness, folks. Don't get to self-actualization, but we're going to talk about belongingness. Those friendships at your work are important, but do they compensate for all that other stuff that's hard? I don't know. Here's where I need to say something. In the middle of this interview, I speak specifically about people I used to work with, about how it's not just friendship, it's love, and how I loved some of my former coworkers. And I don't know if I was being a smart ass or if I just didn't want to say the wrong thing in, in the podcast that my wife is going to hear, but that I didn't mention any women, and I, and I regret saying that. So at the end of this podcast, I'm going to give a more complete list of the people I used to work with that I love. So stay tuned for that, all right? Let me tell you about our guest, Bruce Daisley. Bruce Daisley is the first person in his family to attend university. His first jobs were flipping burgers at McDonald's, but since then has hit some pretty high corporate highs. He spent his career working in media and technology companies like YouTube, Google, and EMAP, and his latest venture in corporate leadership was VP of EMEA for Twitter not king of Europe. Along the way, Bruce became obsessed with making our jobs better and how and why we get it wrong. Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, his new book here in the United States, which was released in the UK under the name The Joy of Work. So if you're one of the 3% of my audience who lives in the UK, hello, find it under The Joy of Work. This book is his attempt to escape the bad opinions that leaders bring to work culture and replace them with evidence and facts leading to a better work environment. I had a lot of fun talking to Bruce. Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Daisley. Things weren't going well. <laughs> things things definitely weren't going well. We'd had we'd had a bad couple of quarters, and he'd wandered past and said, "Right, that's enough of that laughing." It looks like we're sort of making light of the company's plight. Far from it. Not only is laughter one of the most potent things for giving us resilience. Laughter seems to reset our own sort of calibration, our own stress levels, anxiety levels. But in addition, we laugh to feel connected with other people. So if you go to a company meeting and everyone laughs, it creates a euphoria, it releases hormones that make us more happy, but it forges a connectedness. And so, you know, when I then reflect on my old boss saying, now's not the time to be seen laughing, I think, well, actually, Probably when times are hard is the best time to be seen laughing. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Bruce Daisley, welcome to Crazy Money. Hello, great to be here. <laughs> are you from Alabama? Uh, I'm from Birmingham, UK. Oh, Birmingham, UK. Birmingham, Alabama. Ah, I see. I was confused. The interesting thing about UK is that um, a lot of people, US people, fetishize our accents and think that we've got great accents. Let me tell you, in the UK, no one would want my accent. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no? it's the... Uh, it's the worst. It's the bottom feeding accent. It's the worst accent in the UK. Oh, well, then we'll just have to rely on substance today. Yeah. Damn it. That's a, that's a high bar for me. Your book will be coming out in the US the week after this airs on February 25th. And the title of the book is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Where's the title come from? 
The title actually comes from, which is the name of a podcast I do as well, but the title actually comes from a track by Fatboy Slim and Calvin Harris that was called Eat, Sleep, Rave, Repeat. And so it's, it actually tells a story of a guy who is out in a nightclub wearing a T-shirt saying Eat, Sleep, Rave, Repeat. And uh, I subverted it slightly to be Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Eat, Sleep, Rave, Repeat sounds more fun. It definitely does, doesn't it? <laughs> it definitely does. I think, yeah, and you know, if you ever listen to the track, it's quite a fun track because it's just one of those tracks that's got a relentless dance beat with someone drawling a story over the top. It goes all the way through. And so it's quite a nice unfolding story. It makes it a really desirable choice in life. Eat, sleep, work, repeat is far from that. <laughs> well, if we had a budget for the show, I would clear the rights to that song and play it. Uh, <laughs> but I'll just encourage everybody else to uh, go Google it. Okay, let's talk about what you're trying to get to in this book. In a recent article in the New Statesman, you were quoted as saying, if you search for best places to work and see images of people smiling over smoothies, what you're seeing is marketing. You're not seeing the reality of what it's like to work there. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think a lot of us find ourselves in work that's becoming increasingly bureaucratic, uh, increasingly exhausting. We're overwhelmed with the digital demands upon us, let alone the meetings that we find ourselves in. And yet it's, of course, it's the natural conclusion that any of us therefore think, okay, well, there must be a better place to work out there. There must be, <laughs> must be places that are really exciting. And in fact, you've worked at one of these tech firms. I've worked at a couple of these tech firms. You know, it's very easy from the outside to think, wow, this is just a different form of work. It's way better. And I think my feeling was that the whole of work is beset with the same problems, whether a company is glamorous or not glamorous, whether a company works on a product that you find is the most beguiling thing on your phone or whether you work on something that's far more mundane. Um, we, we're all beset with the same challenges and trying to make work better seems to be one of the, the most important things that any of us could set about doing. Work sort of more than we would ever want to admit it. Work defines our life. You know, if we have a wretched week at work, then it ruins our weekend. It permeates our relationship with our family. And so for me, it's almost, I think it goes back to the time we were in school. But, you know, if, if any of your friends had turned to you at school and said, I love school, anyone who overheard it would have fallen about laughing. <laughs> um, and we're so scared to admit that we, we want to like school, even though we might nostalgically reflect on it afterwards. But work's the same. We often feel reluctant to admit that we enjoy our jobs. And as a consequence of that, we're often even more reticent to admit when our jobs are not going well and we're not enjoying them. And I just want to, I, I want to make those discussions about enjoying work or not enjoying work more mainstream. Mm. Let's hit some stats here real quick. 2015 analysis of 300 surveys concluded that workplace stress was as bad for our health as secondhand smoke. Gallup concluded that only three in 10 workers believed their opinion counted at work. Two-fifths of workers have quit to escape a stressful job. So let me hit you back with your own rhetorical question, which is the very first sentence in your book. Is it reasonable to expect joy in your job? Yeah, and I think a lot of us ask ourselves it. The first thing that I have found that when I've been talking about trying to get more enjoyment into our jobs, trying to have a sense that our job is a source of satisfaction, of reward. People say, well, look, you know, 
uh, they call it work because it's work and <laughs> and you know you get paid for it because it's a, a trade-off you get paid for doing something you hate and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how humans seek their and get their motivation we intrinsically achieve great motivation when we do something that we we feel has got a good job to it and that might be you know working in a retail store it might be helping someone on telephone support it might be doing something with our hands but any of those jobs we feel satisfied when we've done it we've we've accomplished a job well done and i think sometimes we we stray a long way from that. We forget those things. We can be happy in our jobs. And I don't think we should necessarily be ashamed of aspiring to do that. Let's get to some of the reasons why everyone is stressed. And by the way, you say 83% of American workers report their jobs are causing them stress. And my question is only 83%? Who are these 17% people that have the right <laughs> jobs? Yeah, these, these stats are just so incredibly depressing. I think the thing that probably more of us are aware about than ever before is the levels of burnout that are contributing on top of that. One of the stats I saw last year, there was this time last year, there was a lot of articles about burnout. Mm-hmm. And one of the stats that came out at that time was that half of US workers are in a state of burnout where things that we used to do are just no longer as enjoyable or that we we get annoyed with things far more than we reasonably should. And so any way we cut the stats, any way we look at, at the data, um, the story for work is a pretty wretched one. So one of the main things to point to that, you, that you've referred to as digital Stockholm syndrome is the fact that work is always on. There's no break. And it's the first time in history that this has really been the case. One of the the interesting things that's happened in the last 15 years is that we're all so charmed with email on our phone. <laughs> and, you know, if, I, I, I don't know if, Paul, you, you were uh, in the workforce at the time when email came onto to mobile devices, but it became a sort of them and us. The people who had either a BlackBerry at the time or had something that had email on it, they seemed like the chosen ones because their <laughs> life was just so much better. Mm. They could answer emails on the bus, they can answer emails sort of sitting at home eating their breakfast their life seems so much easier and yet what's happened is that as we've all migrated into that space where we're all doing emails on our devices the average working day has gone up by two hours a day silently invisibly that's why you find yourself getting told off by your partner on the sofa because you haven't been paying attention to the netflix drama for the last 30 (laughs) minutes as you answer emails or this is why we We find our weekends are coloured with trying to tackle our inbox. And work has just permeated far more places than ever before. Um, By one estimation, if your employer expects you to be connected to your device, to to email, the average US worker in that situation is doing about 65, 70 hours of work a week. Is it absurd to try to legislate this as as is happening in some countries? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Here's one of the strange unintended consequences. If you tell people they can't do things, their sense of autonomy, their sense of agency actually goes down and their stress levels go up. So let me tell you, one of the the best things, it almost seems too mundane to talk about, is the benefit of taking a lunch break. If we take a lunch break every day, it's the equivalent of five or six 
weeks of vacation a year. It puts us in a much better state. There's so much science about taking a lunch break. You know, it's one for you to be aware, Paul, that anytime you find yourself in court, the worst time to be in court is just before lunch. You're more likely to be found guilty. You're more likely to get a severe sentence. So, you know, Taking a break makes judges less judgmental, juries less judgmental. So so taking a break is really powerful. However, if you stand at someone's desk and you say you must take a lunch break, their stress levels, rather than going down, they go up. And so here's one of the strange things is that in situations where we've seen legislation, in situations where we've seen governments or employers getting involved it doesn't always have the consequence of making stress levels go down. It sometimes can make people more stressed. So if we're always working, surely we must be more productive. Well, you know, you'd have thought that would be the case. There's a really uh, tragic stat that sits at the heart of this conundrum where productivity has actually plateaued. It's, it's, It's not grown for office workers in the last 20 years. Now, if you cast your mind back 20 years where there were maybe a few computers in offices, there's certainly... Uh, none of the mobile devices, there was none of Wi-Fi everywhere that we're now seeing. The transformation in technology in the last 20 years is probably unbounded in, in human history. And yet productivity hasn't gone up in that time. And so there's the really interesting thing. In fact, when you look at what historians tell us, historians tell us that um, the first time that we transitioned from Uh, steam power into electric motors. What happened initially was that we carried on doing the same things, but with the smaller motors. And it was only gradually that people said, oh, right, because we've moved away from huge turbines to tiny motors, we can do far more detailed things, far more intricate things, far more portable things. And technology, it often takes about 20 years for it to catch up with the way that we're we're now needing to work. And I think that's one of the the questions for all of us. Can all of us think again, we're not going to get a new version of work unveiled like the iPhone. We're not going to get, and someone comes into the office one Thursday morning and said, here's how we're all going to be working. So all of us need to be thinking, how can we transition to a better way of trying to do our jobs? What if we bought everyone on the team a fax machine and from Friday at 5 p.m. until Monday at 9 a.m., the only way you could communicate would, would be via fax. Shout out to you for using fax because I suspect some of your listeners won't even know what a fax machine is, right? <laughs> <laughs> These relics of technology that, um, yeah, but there's, there's an interesting thing in that. When we look at the stress levels of people who who are working all weekend, they often find themselves, you mentioned Stockholm Syndrome, they often find themselves thinking that each email they're answering lowers their stress levels. But what you find is that their cortisol levels, their stress levels are sustained through through the whole weekend. And what we find, look, you know, if we're looking for the next Usain Bolt, if we're looking for the next great sports star, it's clear that if someone told you their training regime was to work 100 hours a week, we'd say, well, I'm not convinced that training 100 hours a week correlates with elite performance. And yet when it comes to work, we've got this idea that, oh, you know, we're capable of working till midnight if we need to. Elon Musk talks about working 100 and hundred or 120 hours a week. And so we've got this strange thing in professions where we can measure how work leads to productivity and and output. uh, Those professions seem to work very differently to the ones like 
office work where we we seem to think that we can work or weekend and work late into the evenings. So let's go back to some of the some of the other logistical things that contribute to stress at work. And some of them are counterintuitive. Like open office plans are sort of thought to be a way to demonstrate a non-hierarchical structure in the office. Are they do they actually lead to more productivity and better relationships between workers? Look, you know, it's, it's a fair question. Quite often when organizations move to open offices, they say, okay, this is going to herald the arrival of, of our best creativity ever. And you see this all the time. Apple moved one of the, the last acts of Steve Jobs was to commission a new building for Apple. It was called One Infinity Loop. And it's the, one of the most beautiful structures you could ever see if you search up a photograph for it. But here's the challenge. It was it was open plan inside. It's a, a big circular structure. The, the inside of the donut is filled with trees. It's like this, this beautiful structure. But when they got there, all of their elite engineers, the people who create the product we adore, all said, we can't work in these in these situations. We can't work like this with constant interruptions. And I think quite often, there's so many different things at play here. Open offices often look much better. There's often great quality of light. They, you know, they look like sort of fantastically democratic spaces. Mark Zuckerberg heralded the fact that Facebook moved uh, about five or six years ago, moved to what he said at the time was the world's biggest open plan office. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like an enormous I've been place in it, that you, yeah. Have right. you, it's right? Park, so It's got a park on the roof. Right, okay. I don't know what the experience is like then. So maybe you can share with us firsthand. What, what's it like for the people who work in it? I never worked there. I just visited. Okay. I was, they went there long after I, a few years after I left. But it is a okay. beautiful building, and, and the, there is a legitimate park on the top of this building. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I think, look, here's the challenge. that Some of the things that we need to work our way to understanding is what's the trade-off between aesthetics and something that actually works as a practical working space. And it seems the evidence is that when we're constantly beset with interruptions, there's, there's something called the tension residue. Attention residue is uh, helps us understand that when we're watching that Netflix drama, but also answering an email, why we don't fully remember what happened in the drama. Why? Because when we switch between tasks, the evidence suggests, psychologists tell us, that the time it takes for our attention to come back is between 7 and 20 minutes. So when we're switching between things quickly, we think we're doing those things uh, in concert with each other, sort of doing them all together. What we discover is that we're doing both of them badly. We're sort of we're doing them both of them partly inattentively. And what that's one of the challenges with open offices. We find that when we're constantly interrupted by the person next to us talking about the game last night, or we're talking, we're constantly interrupted with the person who needs to us to to get past. We find that our attention can't really focus on the difficult parts of our job. What I thought was interesting about that, because this podcast really isn't about you know productivity or work hacks or anything like that, but it's about the people at work and their connection, how work makes them happy or not. Here are a couple of things that I found really interesting about that. Constant interruptions make us feel that we're getting less done, and this has a significant impact on our sense of personal worth. And then later on, you said people feel satisfied at work when they have a sense that they have made progress on something. And that makes that really resonated with me. Yeah, it's really interesting. Quite a lot of the, the research that's been done into work. The reason why I set about doing this, so so let me take a step back. I was 
I had a job that to all intents and purposes, you would probably say is a dream job. I was, I was running Twitter across Europe. It was going incredibly well. And then somewhere along the way, probably due to a misstep that I made, the, the office environment I was working in stopped being this dynamic, positive, energy-filled space filled with laughter and something went wrong. And I said to myself, right, okay, if I've taken responsibility for the good times and I was very happy to take credit for when things were going well, I need to try and understand what's gone wrong here and address it. So anyway, what I found myself doing was getting immersed in and and sort of burying myself in all the evidence, the research, the data about how people have tried to understand work. And one of the things that you discover is that a lot of it's very common sense. So the one you mentioned there was done by a Harvard uh, researcher professor called Teresa Amable. And she said, very, I mean, almost self-evident, she said, a good day at work is when we've made progress in something meaningful. That's it. Very simple. Immediately you hear that, you go, yeah, of course it is. Yeah, I recognize that. It's very obvious. But we often forget that. So when we go to work and, you know, maybe our partner or our friends see us that night and they say, how was your day at work? And all we can remember is we've been in four hours of meetings. <laughs> we've, had, we've had to answer 50 Slack messages. We've tried to get back to people on email. We feel guilty that we haven't really got back to all the people we needed to. And we find ourselves in a situation where we still feel anxious, fidgety, annoyed by our jobs. And it's down to that thing that work isn't allowing us to get something meaningful done. It's so interesting that that's what drives satisfaction at work. And it's not the mm. only thing, but it did kind of crystallize for me when you, when you said that. Because it's like, what do people want? They want the opportunity to contribute on a product that means something with people that they want to be around. Sounds simple. And and I think the critical part is the bit you mentioned at the end there, the wanting to be around, because I think this is the bit that if we're not careful, we can devalue and eliminate from the way that we've created work. What I mean specifically is that more and more of, of us are finding that our offices are allowing us to maybe work remotely or we're on the road or traveling around. And in fact, there's a lot of organizations now that having moved in the last decade to open offices and now moving to hot desk situations where not everyone has a workspace, but there's enough space for most people to get a seat when they need it. And what we discover very quickly is as we transition to these things, people start describing certain emotional parts of that experience that they don't consider that to be significant enough to tell anyone, but start influencing how the experience work. They start saying, yeah, the team just doesn't feel the same. I just don't feel, you know, there's a there's a very simple fact that underpins a lot of work and maybe underpins our own experience. People say that they've got a good job if they've got if they have one close friend at work. So if you have a good friend at work, you often enjoy your job. It's a really sort of simple thing that we often think our jobs are this rational execution of a task. We're going to an office to to do a job. And what we discover very quickly is if people feel like they've got someone who's on their side, someone they can go and confide in, actually, that's one of the most important parts of their experience of their job. That's really interesting because increasingly work can feel lonely. 40% of people say they don't have a single friend at work. Work yeah, can that's, feel that's sad. It's Yeah, it can be incredibly isolating where people feel I'm doing my job 
and you know they sort of start to reach that situation where they're counting down their days they're counting down how much longer do i need to do this for and it's it is immensely sad so i think to your to your point that you made sort of feeling part of something bigger than us is a really important part of the experience of work and that was my feeling i wanted to i wanted to see what was the evidence i was very much thinking you know, not me as a boss, but say if a woman in her 20s or 30s, a guy in his 20s or 30s in my team had said, you know, there used to be a time I enjoyed my job. I'm not enjoying it now. What are the ways I can get back to enjoying it? And I thought really clearly, let's try and give these people an instruction manual of how to improve their team dynamic, how to, to try and start some conversations to improve the way that work feels to them. There's a couple things I want to ask you about the problems with work, but give me three things you do. What would you tell those people? Yeah, well, one of the strange things is that I'm a big fan of trying to halve all meetings, uh, meeting time that we have. There's a strange thing about meetings. I think if anyone had told us when we were children, firstly, if they'd told us how good our phones were going to be, we'd never <laughs> believe them. Our right. phones are amazing. I can't believe how good our phones I had a pretty sweet wireless cordless phone in 1985 that I was pretty proud of in my bedroom. Yeah, you must have been jazzed with that. And imagine if someone had said... I mean, I was watching live tennis on my phone all day today. Like, if someone had said to you, unbelievable. However, at the same time, if it said, here's the trade-off, your phone is going to be this magical contraption that's going to do untold amazing things. In addition, you're going to spend about 16 hours a week sitting in meetings. We'd have gone, what? Why? Why? 16 hours, two days a week sitting in meetings. And then if they'd said in addition, and in those meetings, most of the time, you're going to be pretending to pay attention. And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves attending meetings. We're not really sure why we go to this meeting. We don't really recognize all the people who are in it with us. We find ourselves in an experience that feels, it feels exhausting for the very burden it creates on us. And I think for a lot of people, we've created a version of work which is dissatisfying, is exhausting. It's it's created a, it's almost a gravitational pull on our energy. It's turned something that could be the source of great satisfaction into something that at times is quite demoralizing. So along those lines, you know, it seems to me that one of the biggest conundrums of work today, especially if you're working at an interesting place in an interesting position, it gets the worse the higher you go, I think, is that work is it's all or nothing. There's no, there's no interesting 30-hour-a-week job that I can think of. And I'm probably being a little bit glib there. But if you're working, for example, you mentioned Amazon and Netflix. These are some of the best places on earth to work. And yet their culture seems to be a complete grind. I think this is the really critical thing because, you know, I can't speak for specifics of those organizations today. I, I just know that what people who have either worked there or, or published things about those environments have said. But I think we can find ourselves in almost in an arms race of believing that unless we're working at one of these desirable technology companies, that somehow our job isn't as good. And I think that was my point. My point was that... I believe that sometimes that can be a, a degree of misdirection, but also the things that often shape our experience of great work are far more about the humanity of the situation we're in. One of the things that I'm most taken with is I, um, I once had a boss who said to us, um, listen, guys, now's not the time to be seen laughing. And, you know, so you, 
things weren't going well. <laughs> things things definitely weren't going well. We'd had we'd had a bad couple of quarters, and I think you know we'd sort of found ourselves laughing at some probably some sort of local situation and he'd wandered past and said, right, that's enough of that laughing. Which, and, who, which employee should we shoot? The one who's laughing. You're right. And you know, like it looks like, it looks like we're sort of making light of the company's plight far from it. Anyway, when I was writing this book, I thought, okay, I need to get to the bottom of this. What is the science of laughing at work? Because if that guy's right, then look, you know, let's be really clear about why it's bad. But, you know, maybe it makes us less accountable. You know, right. maybe I guess I guess if the doctor giving you your life saving injection was clowning around, you, you might ask him to just pause, hold back on the chuckles for a minute. Just get this injection. in. I, I guess, you know, we, we regard someone doing a job with with earnestness as them not laughing. Anyway, so I found myself delving into the research and here's what i found not only is laughter one of the most potent things for giving us resilience um you know if you ever look at army uh, stories so soldiers of, or people who've been in army hospitals will often say you know we sort of laughed we laughed at really dark times in fact a firefighter told me he, he recounted to me how they'd laughed in a quite unfortunate situation of, you know, there'd been a train crash and he said there was very dark humour that day. He said, uh, he said, if I told my partner what I was laughing at, she would have been ashamed. But he said it was the way we coped with something that is so traumatic that no human being really should ever have to do it. Humans use laughter to cope with situations. And we see it time and time again. Laughter seems to reset our own sort of calibration, our own as stress levels, anxiety levels. But in addition, I spoke to the world's leading laughter expert, a wonderful guy, a guy called Professor Robert Provine. And he studied why certain things like laughter and yawning are contagious. Why do we, why when loads of people around us are laughing, why do we laugh? Why when loads of people around us are yawning, do we yawn? Like these, he was really interested. Why are those things the same? And he said, effectively, he said to me that laughter plays the part with humans that bird song plays with birds that birds don't sing for their own benefit they sing to feel connected to other other birds and laughter does the same with humans we laugh to feel connected with other people so if you go to a company meeting and everyone laughs firstly it creates it creates a euphoria it it creates it releases uh, hormones that make us more happy, but it forges a connectedness. And so, you know, when I then reflect on my old boss, my old boss saying, now's not the time to be seen laughing. I think, well, if laughter is really good for improving our resilience and laughter is really good for making us feel connected with other people. And, you know, let's not make any bones about it. Laughter is actually immensely enjoyable. Then if all those things are true, then actually probably when times are hard is the best time to be seen laughing, um, you know, to demonstrate that we're sort of relaxed, we're happy, we're ready to go. It's probably a good thing rather than a bad thing. Of course, if you say you want to have, you want to inject laughter into your team, you know, meeting or something, the thing you're going to be afraid of is somebody getting up and telling a horribly inappropriate joke. <laughs> you know, the guy, the guy is going to put his foot in his mouth in front of the whole team is that a, is that a real danger or are you i mean yeah um, look you know it, it it goes without saying i think that's it i think you know i remember reading uh, I, I spoke to someone actually recently who told me who worked at 
uh, Oracle. And he told me that they had a clear rule. Employees weren't allowed to connect with each other on Facebook. And and Google have got a rule, but it's in their rule book, whether they applied by it or not, I'm not sure, where you're not allowed to hug colleagues. Oh, now, boy. I guess, I suspect... Plenty of people at Google hug their colleagues. And I suspect plenty of people at Oracle connect to each other on Facebook, Instagram, no matter what. But these things are organizations that have created rules to give them legal protection. Sure. And I've got no doubt that they, you know, because of one or two wrong offenders and inappropriate jokes, you can definitely see corporations saying, we're going to create a new rule that you can't tell jokes at work. <laughs> Why? Because it just mitigates their risk. Right. And I think that's one of the dangers that when we create rules that are appropriate for lawyers, they don't always pass the test of being good for us humans to, to work with as well. You mentioned being interested in the humanity aspects of work. And I kept asking myself, as you're sort of talking about some of these things, can we really be ourselves at work? Are we all wearing a work mask every time we hit the office? Well, I think it raises an important question. When we look at those stats that we, we looked at earlier on, I think a lot of people say, the stats you quoted at the outset, that a lot of people feel like they can't give their ideas at work. They, they're reluctant to say what they really think. Um, a lot of workers find one of the reasons why work is such a burden on them is that maybe they've suggested something once and their boss has said no, or they've uh, suggested a way of doing something and their boss has has suggested has sort of given them firm guidelines that why they couldn't do it. And very often we find when we look into case studies of companies that go wrong, workers are trying to do what they think is right, but get round inappropriate rules that their bosses have given to them. So their bosses have said to them, we can no longer do this. The worker feels like, right, I know what the solution to this problem is. I've been given this, this challenge that I can't do this solution, but is there another way I can work my way around that rule to get what I think is right done? And that's one of the challenges that we, we often find ourselves trying to please, you know, a boss who says, okay, you know, you've got to, you've got to do it this way. You can't use that. You've got to do this. And it's why a lot of us find that we can't really be ourselves at work. Um, when we've looked at research, the organizations have found that they've, they've got around that. They've allowed workers to be close to themselves at work. And there's a few examples of this. One of the, the most effective ways to do this they're called resource groups. And that might be that all the African-American employees at the company are in a group together or all the uh, LGBT are in, the, are in a group together or, you know, whatever it is, the, these, these different groups of people together. And what you find is that those groups seem to give people energy. They seem to, to give people a happier space in work where they feel like they can be themselves in that situation. It has a measurable impact and the way that they do their jobs. So I think trying to find a way for people to feel like they're bringing their real self to work seems to be one of the most effective ways for them to feel like they're doing a good job. You talked about Maslow's hierarchy and belongingness. That seems to speak directly to that need. 
Yeah, very much so. Here's the interesting thing about belongingness is that when we when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I suspect most of us will occasionally see it in a book or places like that, and we've roughly got an idea of what's in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Let me remind you that Maslow said right at this sort of the most important part of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom tier of, of the wedding cake was um, food and shelter. And then the next tier of the wedding cake was belongingness. And the really interesting thing is that when anyone has set about trying to demonstrate that belongingness is less important than food and shelter, they can't seem to prove it because it seems that when we don't have a sense of belonging, it seems to have this almost physical effect on us. It seems to have sort of this physiognomic effect on our, our body and our psyche. Um, I mean, there was, there was something remarkable in a, a wonderful book uh, last year, a book called Lost Connections by uh, Johan Hari. He cites something that people who sleep alone every night, um, they appear to wake up these micro wakings uh, dozens of times every night. Why? Because when we're alone, there's something in our psychology that fears that we're vulnerable. Belongingness, feeling part of a group seems to be a really important part of, of having a, a rich experience. In fact, the, the best evidence I can give you on that is that there was a 70-year-long study that, was, that studied uh, why people lived longer and their happiness. And the number one thing that led to more happiness was having more friends. Social connections. Social connections. Yeah, exactly that. It's funny. When I left Facebook, I bailed for a bunch of silly reasons when I was 42 years old after four and a half years of work there. And I was like, well, I've got enough money to live. I've got food and shelter down, right? And after a few months of goofing off, I found myself really missing work. And Mm. that's when the upper layers of Maslow's hierarchy really started to make sense. I was like, well, I don't have a tribe anymore. I don't have, even if I didn't get along with every member of the tribe every single day and there was stress in the tribe, I was like, I miss my buddies at work. Yeah. I miss, I miss, I miss people complaining to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, New moms often get this right. They've, they're like besotted with their experience of being a parent at home. Finally, they've got a calling in life. And then very gradually they realize yeah, I just miss something, a more meaningful human connection. They they realize, okay, there's something absent from this new life that I've forged. And I think we often neglect the things that we take for granted. And it's only when they disappear, like you when you left, left Facebook, we only then realize, oh, wow, that, that had far more impact on me than I realized. Yeah. In fact, and we see this time and time again, really good organizations seem to be the ones where there's this belongingness. One of my favorite researchers on this is a woman who studied it and, and calls it companionate love that we, we would often be reluctant to say about your buddies at Facebook or, you know, any work friends. We'd often be reluctant to say, I love those people. Because- I love you, Josh Ron. I love you, Craig Koblenz. I love you, Robbie Listener. And some of the women too, but I can't say the women's names because then that would be that would be harassment. Yeah, ex post yeah. facto. But, uh, but sorry, sorry, but go ahead. Didn't say it, but it <clears throat> seems to produce something in us where, um, in fact, the, the woman who did this research is at uh, Wharton University, and she said at Wharton Business School, and she calls it companionate love, and she says that you know we often would associate that connection, that affection, that bond with maybe an absence of accountability, that almost everyone's so happy that standards drop. And she said when she's looked into it, in fact, standards go up because if you're working, you know, and it might be firefighters, it might be electricians, it might be, you know, 
Facebook workers, when people are depending on each other, they feel they don't want to let each other down. And so that companionate love seems to lead to a, a sort of strengthening of the job that we do. Esteem is the next one above that on Maslow's hierarchy. And that ties right into the formula that we should all be looking for at work, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which makes a lot of sense. That those are, yeah. the, those are the elements that lead to satisfaction with one's job. Very much so. I think, you know, the, the more that we, we think about these things, the more we can feel fulfilled in our job. You know, autonomy is a really critical one. There's a really interesting thing about that sense of control, that sense of having some agency over our jobs. In fact, we, I think probably a lot of us, if we think about stress at work and, you know, if someone says, can you give me an idea of stress at work? We might conjure an image of the boss having a heart attack or some sort of person in power having a heart attack. But strangely, um, it's the people who have the least control. It's the people further down hierarchies that seem to have higher stress levels. So, you know, it's not the boss who has the heart attack, but it's the the worker who spends Sunday night dreading what their boss will say. Mm. That autonomy seems to be a really important part of us getting satisfaction from our jobs. At one point, you write that our jobs used to give us meaning and companionship in our lives. And while I don't doubt that's true, as I, as I reflected on it, I don't remember my father coming home gushing about his awesome day at the office. I think it's a, f- a fair provocation, but I, I've got no doubt. Uh, maybe answer me this. Did your father stay connected with those people? No, exactly. That he, no. with? he came home and, you know, opened the newspaper and read the news. The newspaper was his Facebook. You know, he'd put it up around right. himself. He wasn't inviting social interaction with his children with the newspaper up, but he also wasn't on his phone for six hours, you know, after he left work. Yeah. Look, um, I think the lesson we can learn from that era was that a clearer division between our work identity and our home identity is actually quite a healthy thing. You know, when we discover people who have brought great input to their job, they've they've brought great innovations. I love the value of Slack, the um, the sort of the communications firm. They encourage their workers to do a good day's work and go home. Mm. And I think getting back to that balance. It might seem sort of a strange thing, but it actually can allow us to do our jobs more effectively. One of my favorite examples of how our brains work, I think that quite often we can get this idea that good work involves us frowning into our computer screens or into you know whatever, whatever tool we have to work. And I saw the screenwriter Aaron Sorkin. In fact, right now he's, he's got a uh, he's, he's got a theater production of. Uh, to kill a mockingbird so you know like he's incredibly successful on screen and and stage aaron sorkin was asked about his own writing process and he said he'd stumbled upon the fact that his brain seems to be more productive not in these moments of intense focus but in these moments of sort of fragmented unfocus he realized he was having his best ideas for for writing dialogue in films, dialogue on TV, not when he was staring into his computer screen, but when he was in the shower. And he told Hollywood Reporter magazine that he'd had a shower installed in the corner of his office and he has six to eight showers a day. And I was really taken with that. It's like, okay, that's really interesting. I think, you know, actually getting away from thinking about work all the time seems to be a really helpful way to us doing our work better. And so, you know, that slack value of do a good day's work and go home, right, 
that seems to have some merit to it. Does Google have any rules about showering with colleagues? I'm It works for creativity. I did like that. The work hard and go home thing that Slack has. I wondered, you know, in the foosball and ping pong table culture of Facebook and other companies that were started by much younger people, Slack was started by people who were a generation older. Do you think that had something to do with it? Very much so. I mean, they've chatted to a lot of people there and they say that those people generally have all worked in one firm or two firms before and they've maybe seen the harmful effects of going full pedal to the metal and, you know, going um, full out. And, and the fact that those things are often quite performative, that we feel like we need to be seen to be online all the time or responding to emails quicker. And I think there's a recognition from the people in some of the companies where people have, have been around for a while. They say, actually, it's suiting us to maybe work in a slightly different way now. Yeah. Let's talk about you for a second. I read that you were the first in your family to go to university and that your first work experiences were behind the counter at McDonald's and Burger King. Yeah. Have you done that work? A long time ago. I, I was a waiter. I was a busboy. I was a dishwasher. I've done all kinds of stuff. It's important, I think, isn't it? I've read something. I don't know if, this, if it's the same in the US, Paul, but I read something that these things are dying out a bit in the UK, that people are no longer, you know, no longer doing as many... Saturday jobs, evening jobs. And to my mind, when you've prepped burgers in McDonald's, anything else you do after that feels easy because those jobs, there's an intensity and there's a demand to them. I mean, it's just, it's such incredibly hard work. Everything subsequently feels like people are being kind to you in response, in return for money. Do you remember how you envisioned your future when you were a kid flipping burgers? You know, I, <laughs> I dreamed of hopefully getting a job related to something I was interested in. So I used to love the radio and I used to love pop music. I still love pop music now. And so I thought, so I thought I wanted to go and work in a record company uh, surrounded by pop stars. And in fact, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, you I, did. I left university, I left college, and uh, six months out of work, back in bars, restaurants, and I drew a four-page cartoon resume because I was getting nowhere um, with with these jobs. So I drew, I drew like a four-page cartoon strip of my life. I mean, and there wasn't much life. You know, I was really dragging it out by the third page. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I sent that off to 50 record companies. You and I talked about fax machines before. Well, I sent it off to companies that had telex machines. Nice. Now, people are going to have to search what that even is. That was the only way I knew how big these companies were. They had like this archaic form of technology that even then was dated. I sent it off to 50 companies that had telex machines, uh, not by telex, but, you know, it was just a way of me judging. And I ended up getting four or five interviews from that. I got a job offer from that of, as the mail boy for one record company, contingent on me passing my driving test. And I failed. <laughs> well, I failed. I failed my driving test. Oh, no. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I failed my driving test. Uh, <laughs> I had a job offer. You'd be a huge uh, music executive right now. I know. I mean, the strange thing is I ended up working at YouTube about 
uh, a decade or so later. And, you know, it was a time when record companies were on their knees and YouTube was doing immensely well. And I thought it just goes to show that you could you could hatch these plans. You could conceive of all these things and then randomness and events takes over. And it's it's made me, I mean, I'm one of the benefits I've got is I'm not remotely reflective. You know, I never think about anything. And it just meant that I never lay in bed regretting failing my driving license, my driving test. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if we had all gotten exactly what we wanted when we were, you know, 19 years old, how, how, how lame our lives would be relative to what we've actually achieved. Yeah, I was reading something as well, this sort of borderline philosophy that someone had recommended to me. And uh, it had a quotation from a poet in it. And it said, the memories that are the most... The memories that are the hardest for us are often the ones that we return to with most fondness in in the sense that, you know, it's memories of triumph over adversity or when things went wrong and how we responded. And, you know, I think we're all built by the resilience of things that go wrong. It's It's back to sort of that, the metaphor of, you know, when you go and work out in the gym. It's the weights that you lift actually strengthen you. And, and you know, it's the things that go wrong that we might not see it at the time, but they're probably the most important for us in terms of shaping who we are. Given your background, were you more grateful to be in leadership positions at Google and Twitter than other people? Or did you find that that gave you advantages? I mean, look, you know, every, I used to say to the people around me, look, you know, I'm just enjoying this before I get fired because (laughs) I just worked on the basis that, well, this isn't going to last. In fact, the really interesting thing, I, I just left Twitter a, a couple of weeks ago, you know, and people, you get a, like a living eulogy when you leave a job like that yes. and you've been there a long while. And someone said to me that one of the nicest things that I'd taught them was that if you do your job without fear of being fired, then you feel like you can you feel like you can do it more wholeheartedly. And so my view was always every day, okay, Do the job and say the things that you think probably could get you fired. But if you do them with that sense of commitment, at least you'll know if you are fired, you were doing the the right thing. And so I always set about, you know, so I suspect if you if you asked people like Jack Dorsey their opinion on me, it's like, you know, he'd roll his eyes a little and say I was a bit of a pain in the ass. But, you know, it's sort of to try and sort of do those things wholeheartedly, I think. Did being an outspoken advocate for workplace reform and or improvement, did that ever rub anybody the wrong way at Twitter? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, um, thankfully, the culture was very supportive on trying to get to the bottom of how we can make work better. And I think, you know, the one thing that Twitter is, when I was there, always felt, they always felt we're not the biggest in the world. And so we need to be different. Mm. You know, we're never going to compete being the biggest. So we're never going to be the place where you're in a hundred thousand people and you can work on 50 products. We've got one product and we're an organization of 5,000 people. So we're small. And so we're never going to win on all of those big things. But what we will do is we'll be the firm that allows you to be a bit more quirky, a bit different. So thankfully, I was, I, I was very aligned with, the, the, with those things, I think. Why'd you leave and what are you going to miss most? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I'd done, I'd been there eight years and I felt 
that it was probably an end, uh, just a good time for me to go. There was, I'm really excited. I've been doing my own podcast for the last three years and I, and obviously uh, I've had this book come out and the book's now been published in 13 languages and, and the, and you know, it's been, num- it's, it was the best selling business book of the year in the UK last year. And I was getting more and more people saying, Oh, Hey, would you come and chat here? And would you do this? And I felt, Actually, I felt that if I set about doing those things, I, I wondered if I'm really inspired by trying to do something on climate change. I really want, I, you know, when I was a kid, I uh, collected for an ecological nonprofit and I used to do a lot of work for that. And right now I, I just I'm really struck candidly by by Greta Thunberg and by some of the ways that people who have no power are shaping the world in a, in and shaping the narrative, at least making us discuss things that we aren't discussing. And inspired by that, I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I dedicated as much of my energy as I could to that. So I'm presuming I'm going to fail, but uh, I thought, you know, how about if I give the next few years of my life to try and see what I can do to have an impact in those areas? Because actually, I, you know, I uh, when it comes to climate, I'm, I'm a deeply optimistic person. I'm convinced that we can we can solve all manner of things, and I'm just really excited about sort of trying to apply my optimism to that. Really, that's awesome. Your podcast is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. That's right. It's so you not eat, sleep, sleep, rave, come, repeat. Come on, eat, Let's sleep, rave, repeat. Let's do that one. Come on, you and I. Let's do. <laughs> I'll move to London. I want you to listen to that tonight. Maybe next time you do, uh, you go for a workout. Put eat, sleep, rave, repeat on, and then hit me up. Sort of message me, going, "Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a good tune." Right on. I was going to do that as soon as we get off the, uh, the call here. <laughs> All right. So the podcast is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. The book, which comes out February 25th in the United States, is also called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. My guest has been Bruce Daisley. Bruce, where else can people find you on the internet? Do you have one of them Twitter handles you want to share? Yeah. So I'm at Bruce Daisley or probably the best place you could go is, is eatsleepworkrepeat.com and it's all there. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul. So there you go, folks. Bruce Daisley. Thank you, Bruce. Enjoyed the conversation and best of luck with the new book. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you heard that comment where I told Craig Koblenz and Josh Ron and Robbie Listener that I love them. And I do love you guys. Hope you're doing great. Miss you. Wish we were working together in some capacity. Uh, Maybe invest in my stand-up comedy as a business or as a service. Comedy as a service. I like that idea, Koblenz. You put some money in me. But look, I make a joke. Some people probably think it's nothing, but I heard it when I was re-listening to the podcast and I'm like, why would you exclude the women that you worked with? Because you love them platonically and care for them as human beings. And so I wouldn't want to exclude any of those people. So here, ladies and gentlemen, is a non-exhaustive list of former colleagues, men and women whom I also love. And before I even start, let me allow me to say that I know I'm going to forget some people and please accept my apologies. If you're listening this far, you're probably on this list. Uh, also, I'm going to ask Mike Carano to just cut it off at a certain point. So you might not have been at the top of the list, but still on it. So here we go. Here's a non-exhaustive list of former colleagues that I truly love. Here we go. Jen, Lee, Lauren, Sharshar, Cheryl, Alex, you big dummy, Dylan, Carolyn, Kathy, Jeff, Michael, Jeff, Michael, Jimmy, Nina, Rob, you sexy beast, Polly, Mike, Spence, even though you threatened to fire me, still love you, Bob, Howie, George, Annette, Billy, 
Oren, Ricky, Eddie, Murph, Dave, Nat, the guy with the red hair, Brent, Rodney, Mitch, Mitch, Julie, Charlie, Brooke, sorry, I asked you out, Rick, Paula, Margaret, Cameron, Perry, Beth, Dan, Joe, Bob, Steve, Mike, Susan,